Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know why I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined by the magnificent, mature, and monumental Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? Hey, Chris. Doing great here. But, you know, after we had James Hake on last week, I feel like there's a James-shaped hole in our podcast. If only we could somehow fill that James-shaped hole. Well, let me split some podcasts around, shuffle them back up, and fill that up with James Intricasso from the Don't Slit the Podcast Network. What is up, James? Whoa, it's awesome to be here. You cracked the the magic code for summoning me, which is breaking apart podcasts. Exactly. Uh, which, of course, I tell you specifically not to do so you don't accidentally summon me. Oh, that's, that's wise. I mean, otherwise you'd just be all over the country constantly, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's got to yes. yeah. save on like on like uh, travel expenses, right? Or does it not work that way? Uh, it does not work that I have to pay. I I ride coach or I ride in like in Amish person's cart on my way to you. That's how that works. <laughs> in those, Amish. Are, those are the two options. Yeah, yeah. In Amish person's Amish cart. Uber. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How do how do you Amish Uber? Like if they don't use cell phones, like (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's hard. It involves like getting a homing pigeon and sending it through a series of things. It takes a long time. And if two people summon you at once, you're in real trouble. Oh, man, that's brutal. You actually you have to sew a quilt in the pattern of where you are and then hang it out. And then in six to eight weeks, they show up. There you go. Right. Yeah. You have to hang it on a barn that you have raised yourself. <laughs> wow. Right? That's sort of the yeah. real quick. Yeah. Anybody who's out there who's listening, who's Amish. I know that seems like an oxymoron. Like who's listening to this Amish. I apologize. That was that was really rude and uh, insensitive of us, even though it was kind of yes, funny. All you Amish podcast <laughs> listeners. Apologies. <laughs> all right. James, we have you here because uh, you were in the midst of, of part of a Kickstarter with John Four called The Demon Plague. It is a campaign um, set of adventures. It is an act- uh, uh, an adventure path, I guess, that would be the best way to put it. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're going yes. to we're going to talk about that in a little while. Um, but if you don't mind, we, we do the thing that we like to do here, which is go through some announcements about what's going on in the world of D&D. Oh, I love announcements. Let's do it. All right, Sean, where are we going first? Well, speaking of adventure paths, uh, on our G Plus community, the Down With D&D Advantaged Insight G Plus community, Angela Murray, uh, Gnome of Gnome Stew, asked, I'm going to be running uh, a campaign for some kids aged 12 to 17, and I've already run uh, The Lost Minds of Fandelver. What are some good recommendations for a, a venture path, a published campaign? And of course, the first answer is, of course, run James's a Demon Plague Kickstarter. Uh, but that's not out yet. So uh, it is not. It is not out yet. So, <laughs> so if you are a DM or a player who is in or has been in this situation where you've got younger players who are looking to learn how to play D and D. Uh, go on to our G plus community and give Angela some help on what might be a good adventure path or a good published campaign to run. Uh, because I get this question all the time and I am, I'm always, my first answer is always lost minds. Um, but since she's already run it now, we're into territory where I don't have a good answer. So if anyone has an answer out there, hit up our G plus community and let Angela know what you think. How about you, James? What do you think? 
Uh, I think that if you have run Lost Minds of Fandelver, which is an amazing D&D adventure, you should check out Mike Shea's Fantastic Adventures, Sly Flourish's Fantastic Adventures, um, because he wrote those because he wanted to write more Fandelvers, was the basic idea behind them. Uh, and he achieved that. They're adventures that uh, can all be linked together. Each one takes about a two to four hour session to play. Uh, you can expand them if you want to or shrink them down you can link them together or play them as standalone uh, and they all have usually very straightforward goals uh, that have some sort of fun fun but easy to understand plot twist uh, and they're written in Mike Shea's signature like really easy to understand style um, cool. so that would be my recommendation is uh, check out Sly Flourish's Fantastic Adventures or if you're playing on the Roll20 app Check out the free D&D starter adventure, The Master's Vault, by me, there James Intracasso. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have uh, it. <laughs> man, starting adventures, man. I don't know. I, I keep waiting for um, – I really honestly keep waiting for Piazzo to shift their business model a little bit and do their adventure paths in both Pathfinder and 5th Edition. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. I love – as, as much as I am not the biggest fan of the Pathfinder role-playing game, because of the the three point five stuff, not my not my favorite game. the The adventure paths are amazing. Like I love some of the writing in those, and uh, yeah. like I would love to see them do a version of the Curse of the Crimson Throne in a in 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 fifth edition because it's one of my it's one of my favorite adventure paths. It's all city based adventuring type stuff. So yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. You both. know what else oh, is a, is uh, there's just one other one that I feel like we need to mention, um, which is uh. There's this guy named Sean Merwin, and he writes a lot of the intro adventures for seasons of the D&D Adventurers League uh, that are specifically designed for new players to jump in and get into. I think those are probably pretty great to check out. Uh, so I would go on to the DMs Guild and search for Sean Merwin and, uh, and buy anything he's written. <laughs> hey, I can't argue with you. I, I can't. That would be rude of me <laughs> to to disrespect a guest like that. So thank you for that <laughs> shout out. Well, I'm so proud of you, Sean. That's so much better than what you usually do, which is like become self-effacing and not, uh, not very, uh, happy with your, with your, with yourself or your work. That's, I'm, I'm uh, I feel like you're growing as a human being. Yes. I'm growing in many, many different directions. <laughs> uh, oh man. So the next announcement, I want to thank Merrick Blackman for his, uh, review of return of the lizard King. Um, if you are interested, the DMs Day sale continues on the DMs Guild. So very many amounts of content are available at 30% off if you wish to buy them on the DMs Guild. And that is stuff from all over, all sorts of adventures, um, even old uh, previous edition stuff is on sale. So if you're a DM, go to the, the DMs Guild and check out what's on sale. Oh, and hey, if you want to run a uh, an adventure path uh, slash publish campaign, you can pick up Return of the Lizard King and then just run that right into the Tomb of Annihilation. So there you go. Once again, buy something that Sean made. Hey, Sean and Chris. Well, yeah, I, I helped a little. <laughs> yeah. the, the next That's announcement. Important. Yeah, the next announcement is something I thought is pretty interesting. Uh, MT Black on Twitter. Uh, if you don't follow MT Black on Twitter, you should. Um, not only is he a great content creator, but he is 
been tweeting a lot lately about some history of the game and and publishing stuff from the past. And it's pretty interesting. But his tweet that I'm most interested in says the DMs Guild is now as popular as Drive Through RPG, but it is growing more quickly. It will be fascinating to revisit this in about three months. And he looked at basically web traffic to both of those sites and showed how the DMs Guild is now either just passed or is about to pass drive through in terms of popularity. And I just thought that's, wow. you know, for, for we three who ha have content up there for sale, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon to see if not just in terms of traffic, but if in terms of revenue that um, the one will overtake the other. Now they're both owned of course, by one bookshelf. So in terms of, you know, there's no competition there except for, D and D versus everything else, basically, and and how that's being handled online. So, if you have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it. I wonder if if that is going to attract more third party companies like Cobalt Press and Legendary Games to the DMs Guild. You know, Cobalt Press has a few offerings on there, but I wonder if as the popularity of the guild continues to increase, we'll see more of those people putting out Forgotten Realms, Ravenloft, and whatever comes next mm -hmm. products on the guild uh, because they're such big presences on Drive Through RPG uh, that maybe now that now if there's enough customers there, it's worth the loss in royalty percentages you'll take because maybe you'll sell more copies i don't know it'll be interesting to see right yeah to see if that trend continues to the point where new people coming to to buy things online don't even know about drive through rpg per se but only know the dms guild and that w would be a trend that was completely the opposite to start everyone knew about drive through rpg but uh dms guild was was new so just an interesting thing to keep an eye on, and thank you to MT Black for for doing that research and bringing up that point. Now it's okay. So the thing that's fascinating to me about this is that it's taken this long. Like I would have thought that the DM skill would already be more popular than um than Drive Through RPG. I didn't realize that it wasn't that way already, because D and D, you know, has like seventy to eighty percent of the market share in role playing games. So the fact that mm -hmm. um it's just now getting to that point is is a little surprising to me. Uh, the other thing is like, so there's a, there's a couple other storefronts that exist that one bookshelf has built. Like that's just for drive through RPG, right? Because all the vampire stuff is over in a different space, which means all the white wolf stuff mm -hmm. is over in a different space, which is arguably a, a hugely popular role-playing game, right? Like uh, all the world of darkness stuff. So that's not actually getting factored into that either. Uh, uh to me, it's just like drive through RPG is turning into a little bit like IPR, like any press revolution, except a little bit different from that as far as like a, a web storefront. So a, a lot of the the bigger, bigger publishers, I guess bigger publishers, I'll put in air quotes, they're starting to get their own storefronts from one bookshelf because they can do that. Like I'd be interested to see if at some point there's a Savage Worlds one, right? Like I don't see where there wouldn't be. It's a pretty big game. Um, so d does that mean that D and D is exploding. Like, I mean, of course it is. Right. But why I'm actually kind of curious as to why it's taken so long. And when it comes to third party publishers moving towards that platform, I think the ones who are paying attention and who are going to do their thing will kind of do what Cobalt has done and what, um, 
what Rob Schwab has done with like this uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, like they do their bigger books via Kickstarter and things like that, and they put their smaller products up on drive through. Mm-hmm. And then uh, if you look at Cobalt, like they do their bigger books via Kickstarter. That's like their model for making money. And now they have a Patreon with that Warlock zine. And I'm I feel like that might get expanded at some point, and that'll be sort of their their model. And they'll maybe put smaller products or explore the things that are not their own IPs if they want to make a few extra bucks over on the DMs Guild, but uh, why? Why would why would Cobalt bother? They have their own IP that does really well for them. So I, I don't. Yeah, that's that's yeah. where I'm at with that. Sure. Yeah, it'll just be interesting to see what the trend, what the trend continues to be, if it continues along this line or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the the purpose to go there if you're a third party is to bring people to your IP. Right. Here's a group of D and D players. If I put some stuff up there, maybe this will get them to come to the Cobalt website and buy Correct. the stuff that's over there. You know, I don't. I don't think any third party will fully move over to the DMs Guild. Um, but I. I wonder if we'll just see some more action in that arena from from those players for sure. Uh, and it's interesting because I also think. It's showing you the fact that people are coming there before they come to drive through is showing you that a little bit of the stigma of the guild, I think, is washing away. There's sort of a a stigma out there that like the guild is homebrew and you shouldn't charge for homebrew. And no one in the history of D&D has ever charged for homebrew among sort of the old hat players. And I think what you're starting to see is a lot of new players are coming in and they don't care about they don't have that philosophy but then you're also seeing maybe some people are starting to give up that philosophy because they're seeing like oh the this empty black adventure is really good this sean merwin guy knows mm-hmm. what he's talking about that yeah there's a whole crop of adventurers like and not a small amount of them there's like 20 or 30 or like exceptionally good adventure designers out there that are making quality adventures but of course like our our adventures like the big big sellers over there like don't people more want player content and that's harder to make, right? That requires more playtesting and things like that. But that, that'll be where the the third party people start putting their things in there. Like I can see putting like a player pack, and, and they've done it before, if I remember correctly. Like Cobalt puts their player pack for their um their campaign setting over there because it's like a intro, and like you said, it'll drive people to their their products over in other places. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I agree with you. I agree with everything you said. I agree with you. Uh, so what's our last announcement before we get into other things? Well, we had talked about Matt Koval's Kickstarter. <laughs> you mean that thing that thing's a, that's and at a paltry $1.75 million? Yes. As of this recording with four days left, $1.75 million, That's M-I-L-L-I-O-N dollars. Um, so congratulations, continuing congratulations to Matt. Um, and, you know, I hope it really goes well. And I hope we see a ton more $2 million Kickstarters for a D&D mm-hmm. product and streaming uh, come down the pipe. I mean, it's not like, <laughs> so like, yes, that's amazing, right? I'm glad it's get, I'm glad it's made $1.75 million. I'm glad that Matt Colville, who's an excellent designer, not just for the streaming stuff, like he's been do- doing this game design thing in the video game and the tabletop game space for a long time. Like good on him for finally getting, getting what I think um, from now looking into who he actually is and what he's done, what he actually deserves. Like he's put in the effort, he's put in the work and from a bunch of different angles to build an mm-hmm. audience. So that's, that's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of other Kickstarters are it's 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 Kickstarter month basically. <laughs> like end of February, beginning of March. If you look around the gamosphere, is Kickstarter month. So like 
there was like six or seven new Kickstarters that are cropped up in like the last week or so. Uh, <laughs> Do you know what the only one that I've supported hmm. though is, Chris? The Demon Plague? The, the Matt oh. build. The, the Demon, Demon Plague. Plague. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we'll talk about that instead of getting into a Kickstarter discussion because we should really talk about the, the Kickstarter craziness that's going on in, in March and why it happens. I have some thoughts about that. Uh, if you would like to hear more about that, I would love to talk about it in the future. Let us know on uh, the Down with D&D Plus community. Uh, before we get to the Demon Plague, though, I want to talk about uh, – we have an advertiser, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Conjure Hagalaz is a role-playing game about explorers, investigators, and espionage agents in a supernatural fantasy world. So this game is halfway between traditional games and the narrative Power by the Apocalypse-styled games. Uh, it's, it's a great on-ramp for those seeking to try out more traditional or more narrative style of play if you want to have that what you're comfortable with in something new uh that's got things like sorcerers and kitsune or druids they're in there but you could also play orcs or uh cryomancers or satyrs there's also a the dwarves in this game they're not actually the traditional dwarves they're giant humanized uh badgers they're they're the anthropomorphic badgers but they're the druids in this game i kind of love that that take on 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 the druids uh, your characters, they're there to investigate the underworld, explore astral spaces, and undertake espionage on the many moons of Rikirta, which is the world that all this stuff takes place in. Um, this game encourages group storytelling uh, via a system called the Fate Weave, which is a way to link characters' goals, motivations, and life events. Uh, the, the books that you get, the PDFs, they include maps, creatures, spells, espionage moves, and guides to playing and running the game. You can pick up Kondra Hagalaz on, on DriveThruRPG. Uh, the, the tagline, which I love, is come for the sword chucks, stay for the astral plane. And I will have a link in the show notes where you can pick that up. It's only $6 and it's a couple of PDFs. It's pretty and it's nicely laid out. And if you are uh, listeners to the network, it is by our very own Blake Ryan Batman from Australia. So support him. Give him a few bucks. Buy his thing. Thank you very much for listening. All right. Let's get on with the Demon Plague, which is a five, fifth edition campaign with sandbox and hex crawling and mega dungeons and linear design and all sorts of stuff. It's in four parts. It's 372 pages of content. It takes your characters from first to 20th level. James, tell us more about it. So, yeah. So the Demon Plague uh, is actually something. So John Four, who runs RolePlayingTips.com and has for over a decade now, uh, approached me in January of 2016 and asked me if I wanted to write a D&D adventure with him. Uh, and I had never really done anything on that scale at that point. Uh, and I said, yeah, how hard could it be? Um, and uh, and hmm. so he laid out for me an outline he had created. He does a lot of workshops with people where like adventure building workshops, combat workshops, that sort of thing. And he had an adventure building workshop online where they mapped out this enormous adventure uh, that takes place in this valley. And he wanted to make that adventure like an actual published, tangible thing you could hold in your hands. Uh, and so he gave me that outline, and uh, that is what I used for the next year uh, to write what has become a over 350-page uh, adventure path that takes characters from levels 1 through 20. Um, it takes place in the Luna Valley, um, which is a valley you can drop into any campaign setting. And the idea is there used to be this big glacier that filled up the valley, and a uh, comet, uh, you know, an, a meteor has come and smashed into the 
valley, uh, melting the glacier, displacing thousands of people, uh, and only one small village survives. And so all of the refugees are headed towards this place, and it turns out uh, as the glacier melts, there are all sorts of ancient ruined civilizations underneath it, uh, in addition to a lot of undead weird uh that are all now thawed out and crawling around and uh killing people and disease starts to spread and you sort of begin to learn what was the secret behind all of these civilizations what were they doing here how did this glacier land on top of them what's going on uh and so you unravel that mystery as player characters um as you progress from levels one through twenty and you're helping out various refugees, you're taking back settlements, you're finding supplies, uh, and you are maybe saving the world? So Maybe. That's the maybe. There's some play. choices that you get to make, yes. right? Uh, towards the end. Yeah. By the way, I really love the um, the hook for this. It's it's an iceberg melts and, and destroys this valley pretty much, and everybody's going crazy. So, like, <laughs> the first... Like levels one through five, because that's the frozen necromancer. That's part one. Mm-hmm. You um, there's some. It's, and I want to talk about the design. We'll, we'll get into the design a little bit, but later. Uh, but like you're you're basically trying to help these people survive for your first five levels and all the bad stuff that's coming out and helping them sur- like eat and find ways places to sleep. It sounds like so that's a really good hook for characters who want to be heroic. Yeah, definitely. And what's cool about it is um, this town where everybody is coming to. Uh, it is also an election year for the village council. Um, so there's some like crazy election stuff going on. Uh, treatment of refugees is one of the issues on the table. Uh, you can tell I was writing this during 2016. Um, and uh, and so there's all sorts of from the get go political entry you can get into as well. Um, so it's not just a hardcore survival adventure. There's a lot going on there. And it's really designed to help new GMs learn how to improv. Um, so it starts it's divided into four parts. The first part is a sort of very linear adventure um, and what's going on in the town is sort of malleable. So you can, you leave the town and go off and do these things and then you come back and you see how things have changed. Uh, The second part is a more open sandbox. The third part is a hex crawl um, where your players really are, are literally have gone off the map Mm -hmm. uh, and you're generating the hexes with them as you go and figuring out what's in there. And then the fourth part is a mega dungeon. Um, and so the idea is that as a GM, if you're not comfortable with improv, this adventure gives you the tools, uh, by slowly becoming more and more open to help you, uh, sort of improv your way through parts of the story and, and give it your own touch and, and add things. So, um, that's one of the, the big goals, uh, because I think it probably took me a good 15 years to learn how to let go of the story I was in and not drag my players through it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and let them tell the story they wanted to tell. And, and that's one of the big design goals with this. And hopefully we hit it. Sean, do you have any questions about the Demon Plague itself before we start talking about um, adventure paths and long campaigns and how to design them? Uh, one of the things that, that you talk about in the Kickstarter is the 12-hour video course. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that is John Four's baby. Uh, it is He does all of these courses that are behind paywalls on his website. So uh, at that 
backer level, which is our highest backer level at 150 Canadian dollars. Um, you, uh, you, <laughs> which is what a dollar fifty American, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's like three books, I guess. Uh, I just always remember there was the like book conversion to Canadian dollars in the back <laughs> of books. When I was um, but uh, yeah, so you, uh, you, it's a twelve part video course. Um, you know, each video is in depth, and it is the same course that actually helped develop this adventure. Um, so it is John, uh, it is him on camera and then it is him, uh, going to his computer, opening up his notes, showing how he does things, uh, and building, uh, helping you build an adventure. But the great thing is you can build an adventure along with him. It's sort of like step by step. Here's how we're going to develop your, uh, environment. Here's how we're developing your villains. Here's how, you know, so do this along with me. You know, that sort of thing, but make it your own, do your own story as I am doing it and, and giving you tips and showing you how. So that's the idea behind the adventure building course. Cool. Yeah, I have a lot of design questions and, and thoughts, but I, I mm -hmm. wanted to just ask a couple more questions just about the product and, and the Kickstarter itself. Um, you talk oh, about sure. 21 new monsters. Uh, are, do those cover a wide range of uh, challenge ratings or is it mostly focused on one level or another? Uh, it's a pretty wide range of challenge ratings because the adventure goes from one through 20. Uh, so we have, uh, there's a ton of at the beginning, right? Because you're getting introduced to monsters. There's a lot of monsters at the beginning that we're meeting. There are winter goblins and winter hobgoblins. And so they're sort of a winterized version of those creatures. Um, and then, uh, there's a lot of undead that runs the gamut so um you know we start with uh zombies that uh that are demon plague zombies uh that mm -hmm. like explode and vomit gross stuff all over you uh sort of inspired by rob schwalb i guess um and uh not, not and rob himself uh right, right. rob's by creations his, right <laughs> by his aesthetic yes right. yeah exactly um yeah rob himself uh is very much alive and vomiting grossness um so uh and and then we get into like big undead plants like there's a big undead collection of necrotic vines that's a challenge rating 12 creature that okay. comes after you so we really do run the gamut it is unsurprisingly a lot of undead and a lot of demons uh, <laughs> that are there so yeah uh, there's there's a lot of things and including uh, new like big, terrible, terrifying demons as well, because nice. obviously it's the demon plague. So I guess we're kind of uh, giving a little bit away uh, in, in that sense. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a demon plague, but there's also a lich that's kind of the big bad, right? Uh, so in the first adventure, there is an undead necromancer. Uh, he's not exactly a lich, um, uh, who is the, who is one of the, the bad guys. Each adventure kind of has it. Each section of the adventure kind of has its own big bad. Um, so, uh, there, uh, I don't think they're actually, what am I doing with my life? I don't think there is an actual full on lich in this adventure. No, that's okay. New new things are better anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. New things are better. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. There is lich. Uh, there is lich. Uh, <laughs> there is a lich somewhere. Mind. Forget what I said. Forget what I said. <laughs> he he runs the general store. I forgot about him. Yeah, yes, right. Yeah, that's how that yeah. works. He's more. Uh, yeah, he's more an interaction character. He's not somebody you're supposed to kill. He's more. Mm. Uh, you know, 
more more there for flavor. I mean, it seems like the way that your your the things that you design go right. Liches aren't there to to be fought; they're there to either talk to or run away from. Yes, yeah, that's my that's my aesthetic. Uh, is I like to put in villains uh, that if you're dumb enough to try to stab, will will attack you. But yeah, that is true. <laughs> that's part of um, uh, Seller of Death, another adventure I wrote. Uh, James, somebody in the chat room asked. In fact, Blake Ryan Batman asked, oh. uh, is, is any of the material in here tied to your homebrew worlds? So you might see some creatures uh, sort of similar to or inspired by what I've done. I changed their statistics. I changed their their makeup for this. Um, but there are things where it was like, oh, I've sort of I've made a creature like this. What if I took it and did this with it for this adventure? So there is some inspiration there. Um, and you will over the next couple of weeks I'll be sharing pieces of the demon plague on my blog uh, as well. But this is, uh, like I said, this was entirely inspired by John and the workshop he ran. Um, So, uh, you know, they, the sort of the main points of the world were already there when I got in. uh, And I was just asked to actually make the adventure and and fill in the details. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's talk about the this whole concept of, of adventure paths and long campaigns and writing for them, designing for them. So when you're crafting a campaign that goes from levels one through 20, what are like the things you need to consider when designing? What are the things that you need to plan for? What are the things that you need to outline? Basically, what goes into it? Uh, so it helps to know where you're going. Uh, so I liked to, and I, and I always like to work this way, work with an outline, right? But I like to work with an outline that is sort of less detailed <laughs> as, uh, the further down the outline you get. Um, so that as I'm writing, I, I have a little bit more flexibility, but I know where I am writing towards. And so we always knew this adventure was going to end with a choice um and it's a choice that you can make there are several big choices you make uh during the adventure um and they're really open you know it's not always an a or a b choice it's a hey here's a bunch of stuff we think the players would do but they could do some other stuff too so be ready for that Mm -hmm. um so uh so it's thinking about those choices and where they will lead And then sort of looking at it all once you have it all outlined and saying, okay, what can I feasibly write to? Because if I write to every single decision, this product is going to be 700 pages long and I will never finish it. Um, So it's it's looking at that kind of thing, knowing where you're going and, and having everything outlined. And then also having some clearly established design goals. So one of the things we knew was we knew we wanted this to be for GMs to help them learn improv, but we also knew uh, we wanted it for people who are amazing GMs uh, like Chris Sneezak. Um, We wanted them to be able to pick it up and still want to run it, right? We didn't want it to feel like it was spoon feeding you how you had to be a GM. Um, So hopefully uh, we've accomplished that. So that was one design goal to keep in mind. The other design goal we wanted to keep in mind was we wanted it all contained to this valley um, because we wanted you to be able to drop it into Eberron or the Forgotten Realms or your homebrew world uh, with very little to no adjustment. And so that was a big thing. And through that, I learned the value of borders. Uh, I think the reason we as GMs love to run Ravenloft 
is uh, Curse of Strahd is like this great open adventure. The players can go anywhere, but they literally can't leave the adventure area. <laughs> um, and so that was really important because uh, the confines of that helped me stay inside the valley and focused on what was important about the adventure, uh, you know, the adventure's story. Um, so, so it was those two big design goals that sort of helped guide things. And then we had some themes we knew we wanted to write to. We knew we wanted to write to this theme of survival and, uh, you know, sort of staying alive in a crisis and all of the things that could happen. So that gave us lots of adventure seeds, right? What's going to happen in a disaster like this? Well, there's going to be undead and there's going to be bandits and people who survive are going to be struggling. They're going to be under stress. So it's going to make everything more heightened. So that means in the survival area, we're going to see food riots. We're going to see the rich try to take advantage and, and get what they deserve and what they're used to and the poor be pushed down and all that sort of stuff. So it was like, okay, we've, we've got this list of things. And then we know, okay, there are these four civilizations that are being uncovered. So that really helped us out because it was like, cool, the various dungeons you're going you're gonna to jump into are what these four civilizations have left behind. Um, so it was really having those different buckets of things and then being able to pull from them and push them together, right? So saying like, okay, these are our four different cultures. What would, uh, we need a place for X, Y, and Z to happen in the story, this culture's place is amazing. Uh, what's going on there? Well, let's look at our list. Oh, okay. The disaster has given rise to a group of cultists who worship this meteor that crashed. So let's put them in there, right? So like that, it was sort of having those different buckets and combining them all together uh, that made uh, writing the adventure go a lot smoother. Nice. When, when you were talking about, you know, the meteor coming down, destroying everything in the valley, but leaving this one village, you know, mm -hmm. the designer in me is like, yes, that is exactly what you do uh, to help your, help your DMs, especially new DMs, get the feel for how to run a game without having to worry about all those outside influences. You can, you can just narrow it right down to this one thing, get used to doing this work, uh, get used to running a game here and then we can slowly expand so a lot of designers i've i've talked to chafe at the, the restrictions that are put on them by either outside you know outside groups who they might be writing for or just the uh the scope of what they're told to design and you shouldn't be chafing at those restrictions you should be embracing them because those restrictions are what make the product better in the long run yeah, absolutely. That's I try to think about when I'm writing what I, what do I want to run, right? What have I had the most success running in the past? And that is exactly why there is one village to start in this because as a product, right? Keeping that design goal in mind too for new GMs, um it's awesome to have one little village there that people uh go out from and explore and that is how the story works as we're expanding the options for the for the GM and the openness of the story, we're actually zooming out and expanding our scope of the valley, uh, which is great. Um, so that's exactly the design intent. So I'm glad that that came through. Yeah, when, when you think back to all of the classic adventures from D&D's past, you know, you can almost name the town that goes with them, right? You've mm -hmm. got Hamlet, 
and and the uh, Temple of Elemental Evil. You've got Orlane. Um, you've got the Little Keep on the Borderlands. You know, all those places are great starting places that that the players can can fall in love with, and that you can really sink your fingers into as a DM to to make it your own and uh, mold it to what the players want it to be. Make those changes based on their actions that that show the consequences of their actions without having to do it on a grand scale. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also interesting that I, I love that there were four parts to this book because I've been thinking a lot about the four tiers of fifth edition play, right? Tier one, you're saving the village. Tier two, you're saving the kingdom. Tier three, you're saving the world. Tier four, you're saving the universe basically. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so I think people who try to write adventures often forget that and they try to either make the lower tiers too big or they try to make the 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 higher tiers too small because you can't challenge 16th 17th level characters in in such a confined space mm-hmm. you know they have to be roaming the world to be challenged roaming the universe to be challenged yeah, that and that is definitely true, and it's one of the things we've tried to do was say, okay, at the end of the first part of this adventure, players sort of become hip to what's going on and what the, what are the problems here. At the end of the next call uh, or uh, or the next part of the adventure, they sort of begin to become hip to like, oh, this is a bigger problem than we thought, you know, um, and that sort of thing. And actually, by the time we get to the mega dungeon, the forces that are within this mega dungeon are, uh, there's some pretty BA guardians. Um, and so it does feel a little bit like planar travel without giving too much away um, right. because uh, you are dealing with forces you would deal with if you were traveling the planes which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Sweet. Yeah. yeah, so it sounds like you're just you're you're starting locally and expanding outwards. It's it's actually cuz you said this is for beginning beginning dungeon masters. It's kind of the advice that they that we we hear all the time like you start small and you build one of the ways that you can do it. You start mm-hmm. small and you expand out. You have some big things that are going on like that commenting the glacier is a big thing that's going on that will come into play later because the glacier is gone and there's a comet that probably has something to do with things that are going on too. And then there's all these civilizations and all this undead stuff and those are the 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 initial smaller problems that are going on and then as your uh your vision or your scope expands, you start encompassing all these other things because then not only do you encompass them um, theme wise and problem wise, but you encompass them adventure wise too, because adventure structure wise, because it goes from being a linear adventure to being this sort of sandbox where you can have some different places that you can go to being this hex crawl where you're, you're actually just kind of walking around exploring things in, in, in this valley until you get to the mega dungeon, which is basically planner travel. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's got this really nice uh, flow to it, right? But it's not necessarily a uh, it's not like putting you on a path exactly. I mean, it's putting you on a path, but not in any kind of di- completely directed way. It's just got you walking down the street, as you can say, as as they say, where you can walk back and forth until you get to the end. Exactly, and there are chances for adventurers to do some very very heroic things, and maybe. You know, maybe it doesn't get all the way to 20 because the adventurers do some stuff uh, that that temporarily stops the threat for 
several hundred years, right? Um, so there are are different ways of sort of going about approaching this uh, that uh, that let the players that really put the story in the hands of the players and hopefully make it uh, replayable and also uh, give you the point where if players do something that they want to stop this you might be able to pick up that story with uh, with that same group years later or another group or that kind of thing. So you, you have some options. Mm-hmm. So here's a question then. What are some other ways that folks might think about structuring a, a long campaign, either for publication or for their home game, that, that were not the one that you came up with? <laughs> uh, I mean, certainly there are, uh, I think... If you have an enormous world and you have, uh, you know, you have the DMs Guild, right? You could write an epic Forgotten Realms adventure if you wanted to right now that goes all up and down the Sword Coast and over into the not Sword Coast areas of uh, the Forgotten Realms. And um, you could really, it could go into the Underdark, it could go to Chult, it could go everywhere, uh, you know, and you have the resources to do that. Uh, then I would say go for it. Um, you know, I've had some ideas like that that I just uh, don't have the time at the moment to, to fill out. Um, but certainly building a world, you need to sort of have a place where it can all take place, right? You need to have somewhere the adventure can happen. Um, and so if you are willing to put the work in to, to build an enormous world, uh, then by all means uh, have like a big sprawling world adventure, I would still recommend having sort of your buckets of themes and design goals and using those to guide the story and also having a, a story outline to sort of help you know what is happening where in the world uh especially because um you don't want to have an adventure that's so linear uh that the players feel like they're trapped and they don't have any other options right Mm -hmm. um so that i mean that's the the sort of other way i would imagine you could do it you could also put out a series of unrelated adventures and think about how you want to tie them together as well you know you could tie things together through objects right the the first season of the adventure zone is essentially a bunch of uh adventures that don't really start to gel together until the very end but it's because the adventurers are seeking all of these different MacGuffins. you know that's another way to do it and you let the players decide in what order they want to tackle those uh, challenges and things um you know you can have a a just a very big kind of open sandbox that way too mm-hmm. uh, which could be really the rod cool. of seven parts is is essentially that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. to, to uh to yeah, use you... an older example <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i think you can as uh as james said you can take take a single element whether it be an mm-hmm. npc a location a magic item, if you're going to talk about the Rat of Seven Parts, you know, take one thing and then you don't have to plan way ahead, but you can you can write for a couple levels worth of stuff, see what your players do, and then figure out based on this one thing I created, this location, this NPC, this this theme, this uh, this group, uh, you know, group of people, whatever then see how that ties together to what the, the PCs have done so far, then write your next two levels of adventure, then come back and see, okay, now how does it relate to this theme I had? And slowly you are letting the players 
make their own connections to this one or two themes or elements that you've had in mind the entire time. I think that's another way to structure a long campaign. You're just not structuring it all ahead of time. You're just always coming back to those themes that you, you keep in mind. Yeah, I actually love that concept. Um, the, the, the themes concept, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big uh, person when it comes to themes in, in my game design. The, the better campaigns that I've run over the course of a long period of time, like one to one to three years, had pretty strong theming to them. And whenever I was stuck for ideas or whatnot, I would just look at my themes and figure out what, uh, what parts of those themes, the different sets of themes that I had, I wanted to hit on. And uh, it made the game work really, really well because of that. Uh, I love the idea of borders, like a contained area that's really good for design because it gives you that constrained creativity. And knowing where you're going is super important. I mean, it's important with the cape. So like that is a that is paramount to like any kind of story structure, right? Knowing, knowing kind of where you're getting to where, where it's going, that really helps a lot. And that can tell you, um, what's the difference between writing a short story and a novel? Like if you're, if the end of your story is pretty, pretty close to the beginning of your story, then you realize you've put together a short story or, or not a very long campaign. But if you have something that goes on and on and on, then you know that you've built yourself a, uh, a novel or a campaign that is, that is long reaching. Mm-hmm. Um, James, is there anything else that you wanted to say about this or Sean, or are there any other questions that you had for James? I had one quick question about the hex crawl. Our friend uh, DM David posted not too long ago that, you know, the hex crawl is it's problematic because especially old school players hear that word. And they they start drooling about, oh, how great a hex crawl campaign will be. <laughs> and there are very few people that have run a long term successful hex crawl because it's not the easiest thing to do. It takes a certain kind of DM to run it well. It takes a certain play style on behalf of your players to appreciate it. Um, so I was wondering how you handled that in in the the section of your uh, project that used it. So what we have done is, again, keeping it to a constrained area certainly helps. I tried to run like a hex crawl over a massive continent uh, when 5th edition first came out, and that was hard because it was like, landforms were changing and then it was like now you're going to spend the next 30 hexes in jungle and now the next 70 hexes are in ice and you know like that kind of thing made it uh difficult um uh because there were so many kind of variables that could come up and then you were in one area for a long time the hex crawl portion is really meant to be one fourth of the adventure so five levels of play um and we have given gms the and and it's through in one kind of environment right the valley doesn't span all these different environments but so within there we got to get really granular right so there's like muddy hills and muddy gravel swamps and uh you know muddy plains and each of those is different and you could wind up from hex to hex in any different land formation. So hopefully that keeps the variety there. Each land formation then has its own sort of uh, encounters that can happen. Uh, and we divided encounters using the three tiers of D&D play. Um, so there are not just combat encounters, but social and exploration encounters that can happen. And then there are different complications that can happen within each. So like, even if you roll for 
the same encounter on the same table. Every encounter has advice about, well, this is how you could differentiate one group of bandits from another, and or this is how you could make it the same group from encounter encounter if you want to tie that story together, um, that sort of thing. And then it also has uh, different land formations that you could drop into combat encounters and that sort of thing to keep it fresh. Uh, there's also within each, uh, every time you sort of level up quote unquote during the hex crawl, there are these predetermined events that mm. happen. So it's like, okay, when you get to the point where you level this, the next hex you go into, you are going to find this. So it's not like, uh, Isle of Dread where the GM has the map and the player has the, has a blank map and the GM is looking at their map and saying, oh, okay, well here's swamp here and here's a volcano here. It is, uh, the GM rolls and randomly determines or chooses what is in each hex so they can craft the story ahead of time if they want to. And then it says like, hey, when you've gotten to the point where your players are level 16, at some point, you should introduce this story-defining encounter that will help move the story along. Um, and so that is sort of the idea. We have these anchor encounters throughout the hex crawl, and the hex crawl is variable, so GMs can make it whatever they want to make it. They can say, like, these are the encounters that are going to lead to this encounter, or they can decide right there at the table and uh, roll on a bunch of random tables if that's more yeah, nice. I like that concept of the hex crawl quite a bit because i mean if you're still hex crawling like if there's a map and there's hexes when you're moving around when those things appear even randomly like then they're there in that hex so like if you found ruins or whatever they're always going to be there so there's this kind of a valley that's being created as the people as the characters are exploring but so you, you have that emergent quality of play which i think is really cool to have it's a it's a great thing for uh for game masters and dungeon masters to learn how to how to kind of roll with that emergent play style with with rolling randomly or even like picking some things and then you have these story beats uh that you need to have the adventure move along so it's just that you have some options it's it's sort of a little uh schrodinger's uh plot point but not but it's okay because uh -huh. that's how you make games go sometimes like that's how every mystery in existence kind of works for the most part i would say 95 percent of mysteries in existence they work that way aside from the ones that you know have the uh the create the mystery as you're playing going on so there's nothing i think that's really a cool way to design a hex crawl mm-hmm Thanks. Yeah, it was uh, that was probably the most challenging part to write because John said uh, there will be a hex crawl here and that was it. <laughs> and uh, so it was figuring out like, OK, how do we make this work and how do we, uh, you know, do it in a way that I would like because I am not a huge fan of hex crawls. So I tried to write a hex crawl I would want to run. Um, and that is how we came up with sort of the the story anchors. And it's every like you can that part of the adventure other than those encounters, you can make everything random if you want to. You can even uh, I even have a whole thing about here's the various treasure available and you can roll for it this way. Um, so or people can roll for it, uh, you know, um, beforehand or decide beforehand what what they want to do. So uh, but yeah, it's my goal was to make it not a ton of work for GMs because what are you buying the product for? <laughs> That's right. Is, right. So, um, okay. Sean, do you have any other questions? Nope. That covers what I wanted to ask. Uh, James, is there anything you'd like to say before we get out of here? 
Uh, I just that it's running now and it's running for the next 11 days. So if people are interested, they should head on over to Kickstarter, search for the Demon Plague, uh, or they can find it over on linked on my blog over at worldbuilderblog.com. And thank you both so much for not just for having me on, but for this amazing gift <laughs> of a podcast. Uh, it is such a pleasure to listen to every single week. Uh, you two are super, super smart. And uh, whenever I listen to your podcast, I'm like, damn, I wish I had had a podcast about this. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So thank you so much for uh, for all the work you all put out into the world. I really Real quick, it. everyone who's listening, when this comes out, there will be four days left in this Kickstarter. So get on it quick. Do not wait oh, yes. on the Demon Plague. It sounds like an amazing product. I yes. hope you uh, back it and get it. That's, I really like all the design stuff that's going on here. It's fascinating to me. Um, thank you. It's like a better version of what was that? Uh, remember when 4th Edition did that series in the Valley? With um, the scar, oh, oh the yeah. chaos scar. It sounds like it sounds like yeah. a better version of that, and not not that that wasn't good because I ran a lot of that stuff. But uh, this is this is pretty fascinating. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, I I love the chaos scar. So uh, yeah, I'm ex if that is a a comparison that uh, makes my heart proud. I hope uh, I hope that we exceed or at least meet mm. your expectations, Chris. <laughs> Uh, so uh, it's no assault on Nightworm Fortress, <laughs> that is for sure. My, no. for, for, for those out there, we'll tell that story again sometime, because I feel like we need to tell that story every 50 episodes, how Sean's name's not on the cover of that, and it should be, and how he got yelled at on, on Wikipedia for it, but that's yeah. for another time. <laughs> Anyways, thanks everyone so much for listening. Let's do a few Patreon shoutouts before we get out of here. Uh, Kevin Minorzak, the old school DM Randy Farmer, Xavier Devin, Devin Ghost. Xavier, I'm so sorry when you hear this. I completely can't pronounce your last name. You'll have to let me know how to do that. He's a friend of mine. Um, Derek Cologne, John Carney, Jason Petray, uh, Donahue McCarthy, John Just John, Gene Lorber, Steve Bissonette, and Mike Amir. Uh, some patrons and, and space rhino, the space rhino and, and who I hope is treating the space hamster quite well. There's some new names in there that I don't get to say very often. So thank you for being patrons of Mr. Mark productions and down with D and D. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of down with D and D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website. And for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout out or for $4 a month. You not only get a shout out, but you also get our pre-production show notes with all of the great stuff that we talked about with James here. And we do try to give patrons little extras whenever, whenever we, we can. can. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you can't help us monetarily, and but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those help even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, since many other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank the shows, and that would make us more visible. So, James, where can we find you on the interwebs? You can find me on twitter.com slash jamesintercasso, worldbuilderblog.com, and don'tsplitthepodcastnetwork.com. Very nice. There you go. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, you can find me at Sean Merwin on Twitter, or better yet, on the Downward D&D G Plus community, where we can have discussions about all of the things that we're talking about on the show. How about you, Chris? So really, the best place to get us on Twitter is at Misdirected Mark. That is the uh, network Twitter. So that's a good place to go and, and your D&D questions will be answered. In fact, I just put a tweet out on D&D because somebody was having a discussion about how D&D is an R-rated role-playing game. And I was like, I don't think that's what? correct. So I tweeted out in the world that I think D&D is whatever rating you want it to be. Yeah. And I wanted to hear everybody's comment commentary on that. Anyways, uh, you can you can catch us there. The, the G Plus community is a great place. And you can go to the new and improved website, just recently redesigned after our giant website fiasco of 2018. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senda from uh, SASGeek, which is now part of the network and um, 
uh, Pandas Talking Game. She did a, a, a good lion's share of the work on that and for Ange for doing a bunch of the new logos for different shows. I just wanted to say that because I appreciate their help. They've been they've been lovely and wonderful and, and very understanding and helpful. And everybody else has pitched in and helped too, so thank you for that. Um, but when you go to that website, you can catch all of those great shows, plus this one, Zhang Yu Hustle. Train alongside fellow students Eric Farmer and Eli Kurtz in Zhang Yu Hustle. Eric and Eli make their kung fu stronger by watching wuxia films and then discussing how to apply their observations to game design. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Design. Hey, James, you listen to the show. What are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some monsters. Some demon, demon yeah. play monsters. <laughs> you down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? This whole party. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Yeah, you know me.